Hi, Jordan here for the People's Assembly Against Austerity in our podcast episode 2. Absolute power. The Tories are gagging for it. And what could be considered as a strengthening of the existing gagging laws. We talk about Pickle's new proposal for still more restrictions on the right to open discussion and protests. After that, TTIP. A proposal that will not only rob us of the NHS and worker rights. John Hillary of the War on Want joins us and explains why the stakes are alarmingly higher than that and why stopping TTIP is vital in the battle against austerity itself. Third up, pitting us against ourselves. We talk to Aaron Kylie about the alarming increase in race and religion based hate crime and why the divide and conquer mentality is being used by political parties at the cost of human lives. Last but not least, upcoming actions the part where you get to take part. The sound of the sirens and the dogs of war remind us... First up, absolute power. Why the Tories are gagging for it. Eric Pickles came out last week with what was described as a series of attacks on the charity sector's right to speak by Labour shadow Lisa Nandy. On the advice of the free market think tank, the Institute of Economic Affairs, Pickles added a clause to legislation on charity funding that will fetter charities attempting to voice their political views publicly. The clause reads, The following costs are not eligible expenditure. Payment that supports activity intended to influence or attempt to influence Parliament, Government or political parties or attempting to influence the awarding or renewal of contracts and grants or attempting to influence legislative or regulatory action. Sir Stephen Bubb, the head of Avico, who represent over 2,000 charity organisations, said, Charities must be free to speak about injustices they see on the ground, whether they are contracting with the government or not. This is a squalid attempt by the Secretary of State to get charities to dance to the tune of government. Pickles stated that the clause stems from recommendations by the Institute of Economic Affairs, otherwise known as the IEA. The IEA is a free market think tank and suggested that some charities were state-funded sock puppets using government funds to support their own lobbying activities. The result? An IEA recommendation to government that says that they should notify all departments that statutory funding is not to be used to fund political activity of any kind. Of course, the existence of government sock puppets is no surprise. And Pickle's statement, which is available online as Protecting Public Money, has what he hopes are examples. The interesting part is, many of the bodies he expresses concern about are not actually charities, for example, the local enterprise partnerships. So, if sock puppeting is rampant, but the examples of who's doing it are not predominantly charities, why add clauses that disable charities with bureaucratic procedure and the threat of prosecution if they raise concerns about government policy? The answer... We have an election coming up. Last year, we already saw the introduction of the gagging law, which stifles political debate by restricting spending on political lobbying. Over 160 signatories asked that it should be scrapped, including representatives from the Salvation Army, Save the Children, Greenpeace, Oxfam, Aid UK and Amnesty International. Thanks to the gagging law, for the eight-month period leading to May's election, charities and faith groups are subject to stringent regulations under the Act. For example, they are prohibited from spending over £9,750 in any one constituency. And if they wish to spend over 20000 in England on a campaign that could be construed as political, they are required to register with the Electoral Commission. Failure to do so could result in prosecution. A study by the National Coalition for Independent Action, the NCIA, 
reveals that voluntary groups embroiled in government contracts regularly face threats to remain silent on key government policies. Many neglect to speak out on structural issues plaguing society for fear of losing funding or inviting other unwelcome sanctions. As a result, such groups' criticism is increasingly absent from public debate on inequality and poverty, the report says. Russia Today also reports that UK community action groups and women's organisations say they have faced direct threats from public figures, warning that continued campaigning would result in the withdrawal of funding. We ourselves at the People's Assembly Against Austerity have been warned that in future protests we may be forced to pay for what the police formerly did as part of their usual duties, i.e. policing, a cost of tens of thousands of dollars that would make standing up against austerity cuts impossible for us. Despite its proven negative effects on the freedom of speech, the Tories didn't end with the gagging law. Only weeks ago, the Metropolitan Police announced that political groups will have to pay to protest, a move described by Sam Fairburn of the People's Assembly Against Austerity as a politically motivated attack on the right to protest. Check out last week's podcast if you missed this. And while several protests from different groups have gone ahead in the meantime, they still intend to push the act through. The third bullet in the weapon of zero debate is Pickle's anti-lobbying clause. No accident that this also comes close to election time, when the ever-unpopular Tory government is still facing criticisms despite its attempts to quell public debate on its policies. Democracy is, of course, about the open debate and resolution of issues of governance. But when those in power don't like the idea of open debate, there are always other political models. Autocracies, for example, where the rich and ruling classes ever re-inherit control. Dictatorships, for another, where dissension is punished and fear is invoked in all who consider it. The trilogy of silence that is the gagging law, pay-to-protest and Pickle's new anti-lobbying clause is a clear message that open debate is not what the Tories allow. Open debate on public issues is not even simply restricted. In many circumstances, what we have formerly seen as our right to speak out has become a punishable offence. We need to act now more than ever to protect our right to a voice. If you haven't already, do check out your local People's Assembly and our website for information on what we're doing to work for an open discussion to be re-established. For the time poor among us, supporting the podcast via Patreon is a great way to be effective in helping us win back freedom of speech, even if you're unable to join us at meetings and actions. Next up, TTIP or TTIP. You've probably all heard the words TTIP and TTIP floating around, despite the fact that many presses are reluctant to cover it. There is good reason. TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, is a key element in enabling the privatisation of the NHS. TTIP is also being negotiated mostly in secret, right now, between the European Union and the USA. Officially, the main goal of TTIP is to remove regulatory barriers which restrict the potential profits to be made by transnational corporations. The problem is that many of the barriers they are referring to and fully intend to break down are the very things that protect workers' rights, social standards and the environment. As examples, laws that protect our labour rights, food safety rules, digital privacy and laws that regulate the use of toxic chemicals come under direct threat of being wiped out under TTIP and its packaged agreements, TPP and TISA. For people in the UK, the most alarming part is that TTIP stands to make privatisation of the NHS irreversible. TTIP comes bundled with TTP and TISA. 
Under TTP, investments are protected through what are known as investor state dispute settlement mechanisms. These controversial setups allow only the investor to take legal action, but not the state in which the investment is made. What this means is that the Morning Star, a UK newspaper reporting on TTIP, are dead right when they say that US investors, once they've invested in the NHS, will actually be able to sue any future government that tries to reverse the privatisation and push the NHS back into the public sector. Also being negotiated under TTP is the strengthening of patent protection, which translates to making generic drugs more difficult to access. The TTP also takes direct aim at markets and services that are controlled by state-run enterprises, leaving them open to irreversible privatisation as well. That means schools, universities, the welfare state, any public sector transport and infrastructure, and so on. In other words, if TTIP goes through, we will be entering a user-paid society where consumer rights are unprotected and where firms are able to sue governments interfering with their right to profit. And now we turn to our special guest, John Hillary, the Executive Director of War on Wants. John, as we know, TTIP is not really being extensively covered by presses. And a lot of people can be forgiven for thinking it's just something to do with trade and not knowing much more about it. So among all the other very worrying policies being put forward by government, why should we be concerned with TTIP? What makes it personal? Well, I think the first thing to say is that um, TTIP isn't really about trade and investment in the old meanings of the word because in the past trade negotiations have dealt with quite arcane matters of like trade barriers represented by tariffs at the border so if somebody's exporting coffee into one country somebody else is exporting steel into another country you know negotiating down those type of trade barriers isn't really of much interest to ordinary people Mm -hmm. but ttip's different it's a new generation trade deal, as they're calling it, Uh, a trade deal for the 21st century, which isn't just about border tariffs. It's about really at the heart of our society, our economy and the types of lives we lead. It's much more real. And that's why we're saying to people, if you care about your jobs, if you care about your public services, if you care about the food you eat, that's what TTIP threatens. It is a bit of a worrying list, so um, can you tell us in more detail what people will notice in terms of their day-to-day lives should TTIP go through? Well, well, the the first thing that you have to notice is that people might be losing their jobs. Um, The prediction is that TTIP will lead directly to the loss of one million jobs at a minimum, and 680,000 of those jobs will go in the countries of Europe. And that's not our prediction, that's the official estimate given out by a study done for the European Commission at the start of the negotiations. So the first thing you can find out is that you might be losing your job. The second thing is that your public services could really easily be lost for good. We've already seen, for example, the NHS opened up to private sector providers through the Health and Social Care Act of 2012, which is why now you have Virgin providing frontline services in the NHS. Well, under TTIP, let's say we elect in a government which comes in saying they want to reverse that, they won't be able to do so because it's locked in to a trade deal. And that's not just the NHS, that goes for education, it goes for rail nationalisation, it goes for water, it goes for a whole range of public services. And then thirdly, the, the really controversial element which is getting lots of people worried across the whole of Europe, is this idea that our food standards will be irrevocably undermined by TTIP. 
In the US, they have miles lower standards of food hygiene, food safety, and certainly no standards of animal welfare that we would recognize at all. And under TTIP, the idea is that these barriers, as they call them, to expanding trade would be dropped and we would have to accept US food, which comes in unlabeled and could contain anything, specifically lots of genetically modified ingredients, which people in Europe have said they don't want. On a European level, we're already seeing some worrying cases come up, such as the Bayer versus Bund case, where Bayer is suing an environmental NGO for a ruling they obtained, confirming that one of their products was, in fact, dangerous to the environment. An action where big business is demanding compensation for not being allowed to profit from poisonous products. Many people are worried that TTIP will lead to further such cases, though with American manufacturers joining in with the European ones. Will this be the case? Absolutely. One of the key things that TTIP introduces is this new power for US corporations to bypass our domestic court system and sue governments directly in special courts which are set up for them alone. So no domestic company, no individual people and no no governments have access to this court. It's just available for foreign investors from the US under TTIP. And We've seen the extraordinary cases that have already existed where companies have sued governments through other treaties for billions and billions of dollars worth of damages simply for introducing public policies which could harm their bottom line. You know, we've seen Germany challenged because of its desire to move away from nuclear power. So we have a Swedish energy company challenging it. We have Australia being challenged because of its plain packaging requirements on cigarettes. That's Philip Morris challenging Australia. Egypt being challenged over the minimum wage. Slovakia successfully sued for reversing health privatization. So they're extraordinary evidence of how these new powers will impact countries. One of the few papers that have talked openly about TTIP, the Morning Star, who also interviewed you actually, (laughs) mentioned the threats to worker rights and to collective bargaining. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, indeed. I mean, in the United States, as you probably know, they have far lower standards of workers' rights, collective bargaining and trade union rights. And the fear is that under TTIP, companies which don't have to abide by the same higher standards that we have in Europe will gain an automatic advantage. And what you'll see is more and more companies relocating across the Atlantic to places where they can operate without having to deal with workers' rights, high standards, and trade union rights. And that really represents the next stage in a race to the bottom where workers are pitted against each other and companies end up laughing all the way to the bank because they're the ones which benefit through having removed these type of basic worker protections. And and that's what we're worried about in TTIP. Now, what about some of the things that are sold to us as positives about TTIP? Regulatory cooperation, which is supposed to remove barriers to export. The key thing that the European Union is in danger of losing here is the precautionary principle. The precautionary principle is the central policy principle at the heart of all of our regulations. And it says that If you can't be sure that a substance isn't going to provide a problem for public health or the environment, then you can't introduce it into commercial usage. And the onus of proof lies with business. So if business can't prove that this substance is safe, it's not allowed to introduce it. 
And in the USA, it's 100% the other way around. If the government can't prove something is unsafe, then business has a free hand to introduce it as it likes. And it leads to most extraordinary differences um, in consequences. Like take, take cosmetics, for example. There's a, a list in the European Union of 1,377 banned substances that you can't use in cosmetics. In the United States, that same list is just 12 substances long. And, and they've got still, and it's extraordinary for us as Europeans this, in the USA, it's still possible to use lead in lipstick. And the government in the US provides a list of all of the different lipsticks which include lead. And it says, but don't worry, it's not very high quantities of lead. And it has this wonderful phrase which says, if used correctly, these lipsticks should not be a threat to public health. And you think, what? And, and that's the sort of challenge that we face in Europe because the USA has said explicitly they want to get rid of the precautionary principle. They don't believe that it's right for business to be prevented from introducing whatever substances it wants simply because people want to err on the side of caution. What are some of the things that individuals can do to make sure that TTIP does not go through? The first thing is to look at your MPs and in this run-up to the 7th of May put pressure on existing MPs and also start asking for commitments from prospective parliamentary candidates. We've certainly tried to make it possible for people to take action as easily as possible. So we've got on our website um, various petitions people can sign up to. There's a European Citizens Initiative, which is a Europe-wide petition, which has already got over one and a half million people saying no to TTIP. So I think people could sign that very, very quickly. Just go to waronwant.org slash ECI for the European Citizens Initiative. The other really important thing is for us to be getting out on the streets and making this into a public issue. That's how you really scare politicians. If they feel that an issue has become toxic amongst a much broader group of their constituents, that's when they start waking up. That's when they start putting pressure internally on their own party. We cannot allow TTIP to go through. It's such a threat to our futures. And if we do bind together, we can defeat it. We've done it in the past. We've, we've fought back against these powers and we've won when they've tried to introduce them in the 1990s and in, in the noughties through the WTO. But you need to have as many, many people as possible around the country, around Europe and around the world working together. That's the only way in which you can, can fight it off. Speaking of actions, John, could you give us the details on the next TTIP Day of Action? We have a global day of action coming up on the 18th of April. This isn't just in the UK where we're expecting there to be dozens and dozens and dozens of street actions and stalls and events, but also around Europe as a whole, where we're expecting hundreds more, and globally in the USA and in all other countries in Asia, Africa, Latin America, where they are also having to fight off similar free trade deals. It's a global day of action, 18th of April, where everybody across the world comes together and says, we demand more than this. We want to have new rules which govern our commercial lives together, which put people first. And I think that's really the strength of our global movement, all speaking with one voice against this hyper-capitalist agenda, which will just condemn us all to futures devoid of any hope. Thank you so much, John. So that is April the 18th, the day of action against TTIP. 
and of course confirmation that getting out there and attending on the streets is one of the key ways that makes things happen. For more information on the April 18th rally, head to waronwant.org. For the page specific to TTIP, that's waronwant.org slash TTIP. Deportation of the alien invasion are the words to strike the fear. And more important actions. Saturday, March the 21st, 2015, is the day to stand up to racism and fascism. This is where you get to say no to the divide and conquer tactics of political parties and the Islamophobic backlash that is sweeping across Europe. And we are speaking to Aaron Kiley, the Black Students Officer for the National Union of Students. Good morning, Aaron. Discrimination and racism is a phenomenon with many facets to it. Can you give us a quick status summary of the problem of race and religious-based discrimination here in the UK? What we're seeing is a rise in racism. Um, It's been really disturbing, actually, to see the statistics that are showing an increase in Islamophobic attacks, um, anti-Semitic attacks, racist hate crimes. Um, I think we're really seeing just a political climate dominated by racism and xenophobia and unfortunately that is leading to an increase in attacks and assaults. Institutionally as well we're seeing racism continue. I think recently we saw the Black Lives Matter protests um, against police violence in the United States but obviously linking up with what we've seen is many 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 deaths in custody from racist police with little justice well very little justice i think there's been over 1400 deaths in custody since the 90s and yet not even a single charge has been brought against a police officer and we're seeing record levels of um, stop and search as well so i think racism is is just on the rise in in britain unfortunately i think that is the big task that we're faced with and i think it's in you know whether it's a violent attack or it's from uh, the mass media and newspapers and that is what is really concerning and what we're standing up against right-wing political groups often channel their prejudices along religious and cultural lines which of course is just another form of racism but what are the added dangers in using these tactics it's designed to I think divide our communities when what we need at the moment is unity I mean especially in the face of the media and politicians using that very very effectively to cover up what is a really deep serious economic crisis that they don't have the answers to and they're implementing austerity because that's the only way they know carry on exploiting people making the most of it but we actually really need an alternative we really don't need um, the kind of racism that they're stoking up and down the country and every single day in the media. I think it's absolutely their um, their tactic is to, if they can if they can divide communities, that means weaker communities, and that means communities that are less able, I think, to fight back. Salma Yaku put it excellently: racism is the classic weapon of mass distraction. Yes, yeah, and there are so many examples from history where just this tactic is used. Instead of allowing us to express dissatisfaction with governing bodies, we're given a straw man with all sorts of characteristics assigned to it, to, designed to invoke hate. And instead of coming together to fight an actual enemy, i.e. political parties themselves, we're distracted by a war amongst ourselves. Absolutely. I think that it, that, that, that is probably, that, that, that sums it up perfectly. It's unfortunately what happens every time yeah, <laughs> there's every a crisis. Time, yep. People try and blame, <laughs> and it's, it, you know, it can be Eastern European migrants today before, obviously, we know it was the Jewish community. I think people need to just learn the list, lessons of history where, the, you know, it's really serious racist scapegoating and we, we can see the absolute extremes that it can take. And um, we just have to, do all we can to fight against this. 
Politicians often don't give people the chance to debunk arguments based on bias and inbuilt racism, so we'd like to give you the space here to debunk some of the flawed arguments dished out by some of the political parties in the UK. Well, I think there's a big argument going on at the moment about the NHS and that there's this widespread health tourism that people are just coming to the UK to take advantage, um, as as the media say, of the NHS. But every single statistic and just reality <laughs> exposes that that is not the case. You know, migrants make a, a net contribution in terms of society economically, so obviously more than paying um, actually to use um, public services. But at the same time, history tells us that the NHS um, was built off the back of uh, migrants and migrant labour and many people came over in the 1950s, 60s to work for the National Health Service and kind of make it the service it was today. And I think if you have this policy of get every immigrant out, as what many um, people try and say, the NHS would frankly collapse overnight. What are some of the things going on at the moment to tackle the problem of racism and discrimination in the UK and how can we get involved? One of the things that I've been really taken by was the fantastic I'm a Migrant campaign, which is going to be putting up posters across the country and just looks fantastic because it's actually going to reveal that actually migrants and immigrants are not some scary group in society. They are your doctors, nurses, teachers, council workers, neighbours, and I think that's a really important um, point. You know, people might have moved here from another country, but actually, you know, by and large, everyone gets along in a multicultural, um, diverse society. And I think that's a really powerful message. So I really look forward and hope everyone looks out for those posters in the coming week. Most importantly, though, if you are someone who's against racist scapegoating, against this climate of um, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism um, and institutional racism, that we can get out there together and kind of demonstrate and show what an alternative and what a real multicultural modern Britain looks like on March 21st. And I think that's really important. So definitely check out in your local area if there's a coach going. Many people's assembly groups have coaches, have links to local groups that are sending people down. Bring your banners. We want to take a key message as well that in a climate of austerity, we can't let racism to thrive because it weakens and divides our communities and it's something that we don't want to see we kind of want to see the bankers taken on not immigrants and uh, so let's make it as loud and vibrant as possible it's on UN anti-racism day and it's going to be part of a global actually wave of action so we've got people demonstrating in Greece France New York um, led by Reverend Al Sharpton we want to make it uh, happen in Britain and make it bigger than last year's 10,000 strong demonstration and if you can't make it to London, don't worry, there's demonstrations happening in Edinburgh and Cardiff on the same day. So you know, there's many, many ways um, to take part. And we hope to see you there on the anti-austerity block um, on the demonstration and kind of say very, very loudly, no to racist scapegoating um, and no to racism in all of its forms. This country built from the bricks of multiple nations, blood and tears. So last up, the part where you get to take part. Just to reiterate the actions that are going on, we have the Global Anti-TTIP Day on Saturday, April the 18th. That is going on in London, Manchester and Cardiff. Check the War on Want website for that one. 
On Saturday, March the 21st, is the day to stand up against racism and fascism. Again, check the website for details. The meeting time is 12 o'clock on that one. We also have the very important Pots and Pans Budget Day protest, which is the 18th of March 2015. So that's this Wednesday. You may be hearing this podcast the day before if you haven't subscribed to support the podcast. Um, If you are a subscriber, you've got a little more time. Um, The meeting time is 6 p.m., and it's outside Downing Street. Don't forget to bring your pots and pans. And we have three lots of people's question times coming up. We have the people's question time in Doncaster, Thursday, March the 19th. People's question time in Barnets on Thursday, March the 19th as well. And the people's question time in North London, that's Saturday, March the 14th. If you need any more information on meeting points, times, dates, or if you need to email us for further information, do head to the website. It is www.thepeoplesassembly.org.uk. With music by Paul Arida, a musician from Scotland who is also very active in the political scene. It's a fantastic song, and you can also find a video for it on YouTube. It is called The Land of the Free. You can find more music from Paul on polarida.com. That's P O L. A-R-I-D-A dot com. And the song is, of course, about the misuse of the word freedom and the fact that freedom, in its real sense, only applies to the 1%. See you next time. Welcome to the land of the free You will see The wounded shell of democracy To you and me A place where the streets are paved with gold for all to see Welcome to the land of the free Except for the likes of you and me